Good day, mate. This is the Room Now podcast. It is July 29, 2022. I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. The good day, mate, is for my good friends down under Nicola, Peter, Ranjani, David, Philip. We can go on and on. We're big in Australia. We're big in Brooklyn. We're even big in Poughkeepsie. Um, today, first off, I should say the Room Now podcast is sponsored by Stills Now. Gee, sounds like they might be related. In fact, they are. Stills Now is our new sister website dedicated to Stills disease in kids and adults and auto-inflammatory disease. If you were watching this month, you'll know that we had a lot of content on Stills disease. The month was called Solving Stills Disease. We had a lot of blogs. We had two surveys. We had two journal clubs. And now we have a website. You go to the website, you sign up, you're going to get our monthly newsletter from Stills Now. And you can listen to our monthly podcast. Yes, another podcast from these nut jobs at Room Now. So I would encourage you to do so. Today's podcast is going to be about a number of interesting new articles and journal reports. And we have a number of new questions from social media and rheumatologists like you. Let's start with a short report about thalassemia in its many forms, alpha, beta, alpha and beta, and whatnot. This study looked at 63 uh, patients with thalassemia, 50 of whom were transfusion dependent, so severe thalassemia, and they showed a fairly high amount of inflammatory arthritis amongst those patients. So again, 63 patients, they had 9 RA, 6 gout, 3 lupus, 2 spas, and then a partridge in a pear tree. But what they noticed was that ANA positivity was not uncommon. The question is, was it from the thalassemia, the hematologic disorder, or was it the fact that it was largely seen in patients who were transfusion dependent? You know, when you get repeated transfusions and whatnot, Lord knows a lot of other things are going to happen immunologically. What they saw were more ANAs, about 10% of those people, and they had a lot of those patients had um, direct Coombs test positivity as well. So I think it's part and parcel of those patients and not necessarily a prelude to autoimmune disease. But again, this is the first report I've ever seen like this. I think the big report of the week was the um, publication of the data that was presented at ULAR on the Treat Earlier study. If you weren't watching during ULAR, the Treat Earlier study is another one of these preclinical RA intervention trials. We talked about the ARIA study that was presented both ACR and ULAR. And this new one, Treat Earlier, and it's a methotrexate intervention trial. So we're talking about first-degree relatives with arthralgia, seropositivity, and MR inflammation of the joints but they don't meet criteria for RA, and hence it's called preclinical RA. 236 patients. This is a Dutch study. And it kind of looks a little bit like the old PROM study where they also gave methotrexate to undifferentiated arthritis and came up with sort of the same results. In this particular study, um, they were randomized to receive either placebo or usual effective doses of methotrexate up to 25 milligrams a week for one year. And then after that one year, they all went off of methotrexate and they just watched them for another year. So what they showed at the end of one year was that getting methotrexate and getting placebo didn't make a difference with regard to the primary endpoint, which was the development of arthritis 
meaning two swollen joints from more than two weeks or something along those lines, chronic inflammatory arthritis. And the rates were roughly the same. It was um, 19% methotrexate, 18% placebo, hazard ratio not significantly different. So the primary endpoint was not met. But when they followed those patients over the next year, um, again, the primary endpoint wasn't any different. Development of RA or inflammatory arthritis. But individual parameters were different. So beginning in the first four months, some parameters showed separation between the placebo and the methotrexate group. That included things like hack, visual analog pain, presenteeism, which is to do, has to do with work, MR inflammation, even morning stiffness. And when methotrexate was stopped, those lines never rejoined. So it's really odd. If you look at the graphs, the two lines for placebo and methotrexate are right on top of each other for the primary endpoint. For these other measures, there's separation and stays out, separated out to two years. The question is, what does it mean? Does it mean that you should use methotrexate? Again, I want to remind you, the primary endpoint was not met. It did not prevent the development of RA. But yet, the prevailing opinion, the Twitter talk, the... Twitter polls that were done on this suggest that as much as 70% of rheumatologists would consider using methotrexate and some with arthralgia, seropositivity, and an abnormal MR. Um, me, I'm waiting for swollen joints, but there are more studies to come in this area. There's the ERIPA study, there's a STOP RA trial, the ERIPA's in with Ab abatacept again. Uh, and that's a one-year trial that's going to be read out at ACR. The STOP RA, the hydroxychloroquine intervention trial, that may be read out at ACR. This story isn't over, folks. What do you think? Well, the FDA thinks it's good to give a further extension to Benlista or Belimumab. It was approved this past week for use in children with lupus nephritis. Approved in its IV form at the doses that are quoted there, as you know, belimumab is also available as a sub-Q, which can be used in adults for treatment of lupus and lupus nephritis, but for lupus and lupus nephritis in kids, it's only approved in the IV form. That's still good news for those of us that manage pediatric lupus, where we need treatment options. Colchicine, a nice meta-analysis from one of the cardiology journals about the cardiovascular benefit of colchicine. 21 RCTs, almost 16,000 patients, showed that colchicine was superior to placebo in overall reduction of cardiovascular events. It lowered the risk of recurrent pericarditis when given for pericarditis, 50% lower risk. It lowered the risk of MACE in patients at risk, a 33% lowering risk with a relative risk of 0.67. And it lowered the risk of AFib recurrence. Again, super powerful drug called colchicine, been around since the ages of Hippocrates. Unfortunately, it got expensive a few years ago. Nonetheless, good news. A single study looked at um, PSA patients and their referral patterns. This was a little bit disturbing. Single center, 168 patients, and they, the, um, the rule was that patients should be assessed within six weeks of referral. Only 26%, in fact, were assessed within that time frame. So, you know, there's a, there's a lag there. The median time and wait time for these patients was almost 79 days. The most common cause for delay was the lack of available spots in the psoriatic, psoriatic arthritis clinic. 
So there are problems of diagnostic delays um, and now delays in referral to for psoriatic arthritis patients. I think we need to um, address this particular problem. I don't know if you've ever seen the past data about coffee consumption and RA risk. It's been one of those crazy knucklehead ideas. It's been out there for a while. It's been dispelled a few times, but I think it's finally squashed by a Swedish early arthritis study that looked at 2,184 early RA patients. They said high coffee consumption was six or more cups a day. It was, um, it was associated with increased risk of RA, but when you started taking away the confounders, like activity and obesity, turns out that just adjusting for smoking made that all go away. So it's really the coffee with the cigarettes, and it's the cigarettes that give you the risk of rheumatoid arthritis. Please don't smoke. Please counsel your patients to stop smoking. So um, I don't know if you've been following me, but I have in the past talked about the frustration of managing osteoarthritis. The My best regimen is... Um, high-dose uh, long-acting acetaminophen with a small dose of steroids. A meta-analysis looked at corticosteroid use in hand OA, both intraarticular injection into the first CMC1 joint and also oral dosing. And they showed, interestingly, no benefit of intraarticular CMC1 injections as far as pain or function beyond like a few weeks. They did, however, show a medium effect of oral corticosteroids on both pain, stiffness, and function at four to six weeks, and I think also three months. So I think this is maybe where the research needs to go. Let's look into some low-dose steroids and appropriate safe use in patients who are having problematic hand OA. So what happened during COVID? Well, we could list that one forever, could we not? Well, instead, what happened is a lot of our patients didn't get labs done like they were supposed to. They didn't come in for visits. You don't call. You don't visit. You don't write. And your arthritis is getting worse. Well, the British Society of Rheumatology has a suggested rule on methotrexate monitoring that says that labs should be done every three months. In this particular UK study of over a thousand patients that looked at what happened to laboratory testing and other things during the pandemic, they showed that during the pandemic, there was a median of five blood draws at a median interval of almost 60 days. 61 patients, almost two thirds, were beyond the interval of three months, ranging from 100 to 150 days. 24% had multiple prolonged intervals, meaning that they were missing those windows repeatedly. Yet, despite missing labs, observations for cytopenia and, and transaminitis were not increased by increasing testing intervals. Uh, a while back, I think Yusuf Yaziki wrote an uh, interesting uh, article about our monitoring of methotrexate being somewhat excessive. Um, and I think that's probably true. But this, I think, other than shooting from the hip on this or, or relying on pandemic data, we probably should study this a little bit more effectively, meaning patients who are doing well on stable dose of methotrexate, do they really need Q-month, Q-3-month uh, labs, or can it be less? More research is needed. Another study looked at who's not going to do well with methotrexate in RA patients. A study of 210 consecutive RA patients looked at their autoantibody profiles and correlated that with their drug responses. And they found that low drug responses, as measured by DAS 
28 CRP was lowest when the patient was not CCP positive, not RF positive, but SSA positive. If you were SSA positive, you were only about half as likely to respond than if you were SSA negative, where you had a 76% chance of responding. That was significant, and it was actually more impactful than was the presence of CCP and RF. Um, Mo Reichland at Oklahoma used to talk about the importance of SSA, especially when combined with other antibodies, as being sort of amplifying the risk of more severe disease and lupus. Maybe that's what's being seen here. Maybe it's SSA by itself or SSA in combination with um, a CCP or RF that is a bad player. Something to watch for in the future. Uh, have you got a question? Have you got an interesting case? You can actually record that um, on the website, on the email. There's a blue box called Ask Kush Anything. It'll take you to a site, and you can actually record it right on your computer. You can't do it on your phone. you got to do it on your computer. I got a number of questions through this and also through social media from another a number of rheumatologists. Dr. Stella Bard on Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn, where I used to work, um, asked a question about one of her patients who's taking Ceruliumab Kevzara, and the patient wants to know, uh, should she continue to take it, uh, even though she just had her appendix removed? And, of course, the issue here is if you've had colon surgery, you know, are you a greater risk for bowel rupture or bowel inflammation or something along those lines? Again, ceruliumab, an IL-6 inhibitor like the JAK inhibitors, has a small but significant increased risk of colon perforations. Um, that colon perforation is highest in people who have diverticulitis, not diverticulosis, and in patients who are on steroids. Of course, age and other comorbidities. Surgery, colon surgery itself is not a really a risk factor. Um, and, and IBD is, is a risk factor, but not really in play in patients getting Kevzara. You wouldn't be using Kevzara in patients with IBD. So that's, I think, the answer to that question. She also asked, a patient who has shingles, either one or several bouts of shingles, do they need to be getting the shingles vaccine? The answer is absolutely yes. You can have repeated bouts. bouts. And actually, I have a report that might appear in today's um, Room Now news that says that patients, our patients with autoimmune disease who've had shingles are more likely to get it in the future. Repeated re events. Theoretically, if you get shingles, you should be immunized and not get it. That's how it happens in a normal population, not our patients. So, yes, they should receive the Shingrix vaccine. The old um, live virus vaccine is taken off the market, no longer available. Um, when do you give it? I think as soon as the patient's over the episode, meaning, yes, when the lesions are scarred up. Would I stop therapy during the shingles episode? I don't. Many people do. Why do that? They're just going to get worse. Um, there's no good reason to assume that staying on whatever therapy you're on, whether it's methotrexate or a JAK inhibitor or whatever, is going to really change the course. Um, I have another interesting case from um, Dr. Vridi in Michigan who asked me about a patient he has, 49-year-old gentleman who has both Stills disease and sarcoidosis, biopsy-proven sarcoidosis, and the patient appears to meet criteria for Stills disease. So the question is, can the patient receive more than what the package insert says as far as canakinumab dosing? This is a patient who really checks all the boxes on 
the features you'd want to see, high spiking fevers, seronegativity, high white counts, high sed rates, high ferritin levels, serositis, lymphadenopathy, spital mega. I mean, again, and I would recommend to Dr. Vridi and also to all of you, you should check your patients who you newly diagnosed to see if they meet criteria and use the stills now site they have a diagnosis calculator it's easy to use it'll tell you whether you meet the yamaguchi or kush criteria this patient seems to this patient also had a biopsy uh, i think it was lymph node that showed um, granulomatous disease non-caseating granulomas and therefore sarcoidosis his issue was that this patient was tried on and Akinra didn't do well, but did better with steroids and DMARDs and 300 milligrams Q4 weeks of canakinumab. As you know, canakinumab is FDA approved. The usual dose is uh, 4 milligrams per kilogram. You can start at 150. You can go as high as 300 milligrams. It can be Q8 or Q4. Um, again, this person's on max doses. And what can you do? The patient's bouncing around with signs of activity. And uh, Andrew, I don't know the answer. I don't know if you can go high. I've never used higher than 300 milligrams. And I've asked a few others who haven't used higher than 300 milligrams. I think that um, with Stills disease, you often do need to use higher than recommended doses for the acute systemic phases of the illness, not for the chronic articular disease. So to answer your question, I would tell you to go to your Novartis rep or go to the Novartis website, Medical Affairs, and ask the question, can someone talk to me about higher than recommended doses and their safety? Or is there a better way of dosing? For instance, could you be doing canakinumab trough levels as a way of telling you whether you're achieving effective um, blood levels uh, in this person who's still having active disease? The other interesting part of this case is that this is a patient with stills and sarcoid. And I had to look that up. But yeah, there are a few cases out there that have been described. There's also been a few cases that, and as you know, another auto-inflammatory disease, that's granulomas, is Blau syndrome. So could this be something like Blau syndrome that's confused with stills? Most Blau patients don't have the really high spiking fevers as much as stills patients do. And the other thing that can often be confused with this, another granulomas process, is leprosy. So those are a few considerations for um, Dr. Vridi moving forward. I got an interesting... Um, a Twitter message from uh, a dermatology resident, Anna, Anna. Uh, and Anna is a patient and um, a physician, and she was diagnosed with Stills disease after receiving uh, or after having the COVID-19 infection. That's been described, Stills disease after COVID, Stills disease after COVID-19 vaccination. Very curious, obviously both are leading to inflammasome activation and what looks like or what may really be Stills disease. A lot of those patients will burn out, meaning the systemic nature of what's called Stills will die down with time. But currently, um, uh, when it first starts, such patients need steroids or need IL-1 or IL-6 inhibition. Uh, and the question that this dermatology resident has is that she's now seeing patients with monkeypox. In fact, she, um, in the last few days, had seen three cases and wants to know, should she be vaccinated against monkeypox and should she stop the anakinra? So these are my rules. Number one, anakinra isn't an immunosuppressive. 
It's an anti-inflammatory. I wouldn't stop Anakinra if you were going to get the COVID vaccine, um, and there's no reason to suspect that you would. There are many of our DMARDs and biologics can be continued with vaccination. I think right now the only ones that really should be stopped for, without a doubt, is methotrexate. Rituximab is another issue, and maybe mycophenolate. But all the other drugs, I'm continuing and powering through. That's the first question. The second question has to do with um, the monkeypox vaccination. As you know, monkeypox is transmitted through close, almost skin-to-skin contact. So if you're a doctor, you're working with these patients, and you may have close skin-to-skin contact, you may be at risk. And in general, healthcare workers who are um, in close contact with infected patients should be the ones who are going to receive the, the currently available monkeypox vac- vaccination. In fact, it's sort of a pre-exposure prophylaxis um, strategy that would be smart here. Um, do you need it because you're immunosuppressed? No, because you're not immunosuppressed, right? To be immunosuppressed with Stills disease, it wouldn't be from Anakinra, it would be from wildly active inflammatory disease. You know, white counts at 25,000, ferritins at 10,000, you're, you're profoundly anemic with an albumin below 2.5, fever is high every day, rash is at, no, that's not you, right? So you're not immunosuppressed, you're just on anakinra and anti-inflammatory therapy. Um, our next case um, comes from uh, Shad GSJ. That means something to someone, just not you and I, the listener. Um, this doctor wants to ask about the best approach uh, in treating severe infection, infections in patients with active lupus. Um, should you modify or stop immunosuppressive medications or steroids? Um, and again, she was trying to find a really good article to reference this. I'll tell you about a recent report at ULAR um, that looked at uh, lupus patients who have minor infections and serious infections. And uh, minor infections was associated with an increased risk of lupus flares. Major infections, hospitalizable infections, was associated with a major increase in major lupus flares. The idea is infection is a bad thing for your lupus patients. Treat the infection, treat the lupus. Don't stop lupus therapies in someone who's marginally controlled or well-controlled. You need to control inflammation as much as possible while you manage any infection. So no, I don't stop immunosuppressors. I don't lower immunosuppressors. I don't stop and I don't lower steroids. I get them treated as fast and as aggressively as possible. Our last question comes from Dr. Mehmet in Florida. She has an RA patient on Enbrel doing well for 20 years, but the patient recently developed a form of cutaneous oral lymphoma on um, and on radiation therapy. She stopped the Enbrel. Um, and she's reluctant to restart the Enbrel because of the Enbrel etanercept association with lymphoma. And um, the patient's really kind of upset because the patient's not doing well, took away her favorite drug. So what would I do? I would continue the, the, the Enbrel and uh, manage the lymphoma. As you know, TNF inhibitors... Um, it, it, or all the TNF inhibitors, if you have a solid tumor, any kind of skin cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, you treat them as you normally would. It doesn't really matter what therapy they're on because the therapy doesn't change the outcome, and that includes TNF inhibitors. 
But there is concern about lymphoma. But lymphoma risk in with TNF inhibitors in RA and IBD is related to inflammation and not the drug. So, and we're mainly talking about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and some B-cell lymphoma. So when you say cutaneous oral lymphoma, I'm not sure if that's a T-cell lymphoma or another kind. Um, I don't think that's going to be a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yes, I would restart the Enbro. But, you know, I understand if you're worried and you're trying to practice safe medicine here. You don't want to open yourself up to malpractice in any way. I think you can either convince your patient that it is safe to use Enbro. That's what I would do. Um, but if you're uncomfortable, do you not have about 29 other choices? Um, and by the way, the risk of recurrence of that lymphoma is going to be the same with whatever choice you make next, including abatacept, rituximab, a JAK inhibitor, an IL-6 inhibitor. Again, I can go on and on and on. But that's how I would manage this. Um, yes, she's going to need more than just the hydroxychloroquine and the prednisone, but you need to have um, a discussion with the patient about their willingness to try other therapies and or if they're willing to accept the risk associated with restarting the Atanercept. Hope you find this interesting. By the way, sign up for the Stills Now podcast. It's going to start to fly this weekend on your podcast channel. Thank you for tuning in. We'll talk next week.